Well, I tell you what gets my heart excited is seeing all these children come down. Amen? Amen. What a great group of kids. That, that certainly warms this pastor's heart. We are in this series called Shape, and this, uh, this flows out of our church's revitalization efforts. Um, and yes, we are still working through those revitalization efforts. They've kind of been uh, put on hold a little bit because of COVID, and it's sort of interrupted some of our momentum. But one of the values that we as a church have embraced is this value of being a church that is people empowering. We want to empower people to serve Christ and His kingdom from their shape, based on how God has uniquely shaped each of them. It's not a cookie-cutter approach. It's not a one-size-fits-all. We have to do it this way or that way. We all have a unique shape that God has given us to help this church to minister and to reach this community and this world for Christ. And last week, we talked about spiritual gifts, the S in that acronym, SHAPE. And then we had a workshop Wednesday night on spiritual gifts, helping you to unpack that concept and begin to make those discoveries. And there are some extra handouts on either side up here and in the back if you did not pick up a spiritual gift inventory. And I went through the pews last Sunday and picked up a lot of inventories. So I know that some of you did not take them home. I know. So there's extras here. You can pick those up. Please take those home. Uh, There's also extra handouts from Wednesday night. If you weren't able to make the workshop Wednesday night, uh, those are available as well. And all of this is also on the church website under the Shape tab. Um, And then there are extras of today's assessment. If there are too many people on your pew, and I don't think that's a problem today, but I do have some extras up there. So today we're going to talk about heart. And I've got a series of questions to help us think through this. And the first question is, what is the heart? When we talk about the heart, what do we mean? Because it's not what Bob listens to with the stethoscope. That's not what we're referring to. Not the, the muscle that pumps the blood through our bodies. To the modern mind, when we think of heart, we think of the seat of emotions, the seat of our passions. Uh, we contrast that with the mind, which is the seat of reason. So we feel with our hearts, we think with our minds. That's, that's kind of our framework today. And we see that a lot in our culture. You know, Valentine's Day is going to come up soon, men, so keep that in mind. Uh, and we have hearts, right? We see those hearts all over the place because that represents love, romantic imagery. We hear the expression, follow your heart. Or we might say, I love you from the bottom of my heart. So that kind of reflects our understanding of this word heart. But to the ancient Hebrews, the heart was not the primary seat of emotions and passions and desires. It was the bowels. Bowels would not make as nice a Valentine's Day card, would it? So I'm thankful that we, we talk about the heart as the seat of emotions. But think about this. We still say things like, I had butterflies in my stomach, right? Or we might say something made me sick to my stomach, meaning that you just, you just were, were crushed, you hated it, it made you feel so bad. Uh, We today talk about having the guts to do something, right? Or not having the stomach for something. So some of that is still carried over into our culture today. So if the bowels were the seat of the emotions to the ancient Hebrews, what did the heart represent to them? Because the Bible talks about the heart a lot. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. What did that mean to them? It symbolized the center of our deepest trusts commitments, 
passions, desires, loves, not emotions, not feelings, but more of that deep, committed kind of love. That loving God with your whole heart kind of love. That's what the heart means when we read it in the Bible. It's the center of who you are. But there's something wrong with our hearts, isn't there? What is it that's wrong with the human heart? Well, the Bible tells us in many places. I want to read three passages of Scripture for us today. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So that right there tells us that you shouldn't just follow your heart, should you? Because your heart is deceitful. Luke 6, 45, we heard this morning, Jesus said, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, but an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So Jesus lets us know that the human heart is not inherently good. We can have good hearts, but they're evil hearts. And, and we are all born with sinful hearts. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, but don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He'll make your path straight. So we can't necessarily trust ourselves all the time, that we know what's right, that we're heading in the right direction. We've got to lean on Him. The reason for all this is because our hearts have been damaged and twisted by sin. St. Augustine defines sin as inordinate affection or disordered loves. C.S. Lewis further uh, developed that idea and talked about how we all have disordered desires in our hearts. The idea is that our desires shape our lives. We, we even talk about the desires of the heart. What our heart desires is what our heart loves. And that's what ends up shaping our identity, our values, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, are shaped by our hearts. And so we shouldn't trust our hearts. We need to guard and examine our hearts precisely because they're disordered. Our desires, our passions are disordered. And disordered desires inevitably misshape our thinking, attitudes, and actions. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis noted that human history, quote, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And that's why we're in the mess we're in today. This is the root of coveting. It's the root of idolatry. We think that accumulating goods and relationships or status, that those things will satisfy the desires of our heart, that insatiable hunger that we all have for significance and for security. But we try to fill that hunger through the good things God has given us, things that God has given us for our benefit, for our enjoyment, but we seek that ultimate satisfaction in the gifts, not in the giver. We look for God's hand to bless us, but we don't look for His face. We don't look for His heart to enjoy and have that relationship with Him because He's the only one that can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Proverbs 23, 17-18 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off, cut off. Rather than envy from our hearts the things of this world, we should be zealous. We should burn with passion for the things of God. So Augustine said the solution is to reorder our desires through the knowledge of God's truth. We have to train our hearts to be zealous for the Lord, not envious 
of sinners. And that's our future hope. It's a hope that we can count on because guess what? Everything and everyone else will disappoint. Everything in this life, every new shiny thing that you think, oh, I've got to have that, is someday somehow going to let you down. Now, our hearts are disordered in three ways, three kinds of desires. One is for approval. Our hearts are, our hearts are disordered in their desire for approval because we look for man's approval, not God's. We want the approval of the people around us. And when we look to other people to be the source of our worth and our value, we're going to be weighed down by worry and stress and the need to please others. We become overly sensitive to criticism. We become afraid of confronting someone with a truth that they may not want to hear but need to. Our feelings become hurt easily. And when we're looking for approval from people rather than God, we also tend to have a hard time saying no. Because we don't want to disappoint somebody. We don't want to let them down. And so we overcommit ourselves and we burn ourselves out. These are not the ways that God wants His children to serve. He doesn't want us to do it for the approval of others. He doesn't want us to be overcommitted and burn ourselves out. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? He says, look, if I were trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Amen. You can't be a servant of Christ and have your goal to please people. When our heart's desire is for applause or approval, it actually hinders God's work through His church and it robs us of the joy that He wants us to have in serving other people. A second way that our disorders are, are, or our desires are disordered is pleasure. Pleasure. Sin causes our hearts to pursue the comfort of physical pleasure. Now, don't get me wrong. God is not against physical pleasure. God has given us many good gifts. He's given us many wonderful things to enjoy. But the problem is that our desire for these things get out of order. When we elevate our comfort and our pleasure at the expense of others, when the thing we pursue above God is pleasure, we've turned it into an idol. We've turned our comfort, our fun, the good feelings, we've turned those things into gods themselves. You think about sleep. Sleep is a wonderful gift from God. But too much sleep could land you in the unemployment line, couldn't it? Sleep is a good thing when it's used the right way. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul actually describes what society will be like in the last days. And it really reflects our culture today. And there's just one verse in 1 Timothy 3, this one part that says that, uh, he says that we would be uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And what, what does that lead to? When we are lovers of pleasure rather than God, that leads to financial, relational, emotional, physical, and spiritual disaster. Nothing good comes from that. Idolatry takes a lot of forms. And the wise person is able to identify those idols and destroy those things that want to usurp God's place in our lives. Now, we live in a highly affluent society. And I've said this before. The people sitting here right now, we are among the wealthiest people to ever walk the planet. We are blessed in so many ways that we just don't even think about or take, we just take for granted. And because we live in a highly affluent society, we tend to go to extreme measures to provide comfort for ourselves. 
to enjoy pleasures, to have an easy and enjoyable life. We, we want to avoid sacrifice, we want to avoid pain. We come up with all kinds of ways to try to not work any harder than we have to. And what do these things lead to? They lead to addiction. They lead to apathy. They lead to a lack of concern for the sufferings and the needs of other people. And I think our many pleasurable distractions are some of the greatest enemies we face to fulfilling the Great Commission. Why do churches struggle? Why are 85% of all churches plateaued or declining? Why are we seeing our culture slip away from the biblical foundations it was built upon? I think it's because we've become too distracted by our pleasures, by our games, by our entertainments. We have settled on a heart passion, and that heart passion is our own pleasure. To have a good time, to work and live for the weekend, and everything else is secondary. You know, it displays itself when we don't want to come out on a Wednesday night to take a shape workshop. It comes up when trunk or treat is coming around, and you just don't want to give up that Saturday. You don't want to miss that football game. It comes up when we don't want to commit ourselves to the weekly responsibility of teaching a Sunday school class or being a greeter or singing in the choir. Why? Because we might miss out on something else. Something more fun might come up. And so we just are content to sit. Pleasure is disordered. And then power, this desire for power is also disordered. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 20, he calls together the disciples. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus here contrasts the world's craving and pursuit for power with his mission to serve. Even at the expense of his own life, Jesus reorders the desires of our heart this way. Real power and strength only comes when you're willing to give it up in service to others, not when you cling to it and fight for it. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of that. God... He set aside these rights as God and He stepped down and humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant. He became as a slave and He lived an obedient, perfect, sinless life for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of our eternal souls. And then He died on the cross taking our sin and shame upon Himself. He he came to the lowest you could possibly come. But then God Paul says then that God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that's above every name. And if God Himself was willing to do that, how much more should we be willing to humble ourselves and serve? See, those who desire power at the expense of others, they only serve themselves. And and, and that manifests itself in terrible ways. Ambition. Careerism at the expense of others, even your own family. People being overly opinionated and refusing to listen to other ideas. That doesn't happen any time today, does it? No, instead we are an argumentative people, aren't we? We're highly partisan. We're unteachable. We're afraid to admit when we might be wrong. But Jesus 
had the perfectly ordered heart. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. That's what this table that we're going to share in later on, that's what it's all about. And Jesus taught us to be like that. To love and pray for our enemies. To wash one another's feet. To lay down our lives. To give rather than receive. To be the last and the least. That's what's wrong with our heart. That's the bad news. Our hearts are so twisted by sin. Our desires and passions are so deeply disordered that we're lost. We're spiritually dead. We're destined for a godless eternity. But there's good news. What can we do to change our hearts? What can we do to change our hearts? The good news is hope. Our God is the great physician. And His speciality is heart replacement surgery. That's what He does. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a heart to know Me. For I am the Lord and they will be My people. And I will be their God. And they will return to Me with their whole heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old things are past, and behold, the new has come. So how can we change our hearts? The first thing we have to do is to trust Jesus to change our hearts. Only Jesus can give us new hearts. We have to come to a saving faith in Christ first and foremost, which means that we have to acknowledge and confess our need for a new heart. We have to be honest with ourselves and agree with God that, yes, my heart is sick. My heart is full of darkness and death. My orders are out of, my desires are out of order. And once we acknowledge and confess that we need a new heart, we then turn in faith and trust to Jesus. Trusting in what He did on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to make us right with a holy God and to bring us into His family. And the Bible is clear. The moment you do that, the moment you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ, God gives you a new heart. His Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, transforming your desires, reordering your passions, giving you new burdens and stirring up a Christ-like love in you for other people. Now, let's say that I needed heart surgery, open-heart surgery. I have to first believe the doctor when he tells me I've got a heart problem, don't I? I have to believe what the doctor says. I have to acknowledge that I have a problem. And then I have to submit to him, don't I? I have to trust this this surgeon enough to let them put me to sleep and cut me open. That's trust, isn't it? That is trust. Because you know what I can't do? I can't perform heart surgery on myself. The best heart surgeon in the world couldn't perform heart surgery on himself, could he? And neither can we affect a change of heart ourselves. We have to admit our need for a Savior and submit and trust Him to do what only He can do. And that's give us new hearts. The Bible makes it clear that even then, even when Jesus comes and gives us a new heart, we still have this old sinful nature at work within us. See, salvation comes sort of in three phases. The minute you trust in Jesus... 
He saves you from the penalty of sin. Your slate is wiped clean and you stand righteous before a holy God. You will spend eternity with Him in heaven. No ifs, ands, or buts. And someday, when Christ returns, He'll complete His work and save us from the very presence of sin. He'll bring us into the new heaven and new earth where there is no sin. There is no lying. There is no shame. There is no guilt. There is no covetousness. None of those things. All of our desires are ordered perfectly in heaven. But in the here and now, in between that salvation from sin's penalty and salvation from sin's presence, God by His Holy Spirit is working in us to save us from sin's power. He is transforming us every day, working the character of Christ into us bit by bit. And that's a partnership effort. There's something that we have to do for that. Paul talks about in Philippians 2.12, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Think about it this way. If someone does have open heart surgery, okay, maybe they, you know, they had all kinds of blocked arteries, they need surgery, they go in there, the doctors do what only the doctors can do, they fix up that heart, but when that patient wakes up and starts to recover, what is that cardiologist going to ask that patient to do? They ask you to change your diet, ask you to do some exercising, They're going to say, you can't eat this anymore, you can't eat that anymore, and here's some medicine you have to take. Now, if you as the patient don't do those things, what's probably going to happen? You might might end up on that operating table again, mightn't you? And the same is true for us. Yes, God gives us a new heart, but then He asks us to change our ways. He asks us to engage in some spiritual exercises. He asks us to partner with Him in strengthening and growing that heart and that love for Him. How do we do that? That's the next thing. We have to ask God to examine our hearts. In Psalm 139, David gives us a beautiful prayer. I love this prayer. I pray this prayer daily. Search me, God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. In daily prayer... And in the Word, in weekly worship and Bible study, we ask God to keep an eye on our hearts. Think of it as having a regular spiritual checkup with your heart doctor. And let Him listen. And let Him examine. And let Him show you those things in your heart that, 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 that sin nature still lurking within you that you need to keep an eye on. That you need to work on so that you don't let your desires become disordered again. I mean, God can see and know our hearts better than we can. I mean, he knows us inside and out. And so we need to daily submit to Him and ask Him, God, examine me. Show me the, the sinful passions and disordered desires that are still lurking in my life. And then the next thing we have to do is we have to guard our hearts with His truth. We ask God to examine our hearts, but then we have to guard our hearts. That was the passage we heard this morning. I want to read that again from, from Proverbs chapter 4. Above all else, above all else, That's strong language. Top priority above all other things, guard your heart. Why? For it is the wellspring of life. Now, what does it mean that our heart's the wellspring of life, that everything in our life flows from our hearts? What does that mean? Well, it means we have to guard our hearts because our hearts shape our actions. What the heart most loves and trusts the mind will find most reasonable. And what the mind finds reasonable, the emotions will find desirable. And what the emotions find desirable, the will finds doable. It starts in our heart. 
It goes to our mind. It hits us in our feelings. And then we act on it. You know, a city in ancient times would ruthlessly guard its water supply because the life, health, and security of that city flowed from that one source. And so we have to guard our hearts because everything flows from it. You think about pollutants getting into a city's water supply. Think about Flint, Michigan, several years ago. How devastating that is for a community. Imagine, you know, an outside force coming in to sabotage or to capture our water supply. And in the same way, our hearts can be captured and sabotaged and poisoned. He gives us three specific ways. He says in verse 24, put away perversity from your mouth. Let corrupt talk be far from your lips. Our own words can harden our heart, can't they? I mean, if we find ourselves just complaining about somebody all the time, and we're just kind of bad talking them all the time, you know what's going to happen in your heart? Your heart's going to sour even more and more and more to that person. You actually make your heart hard toward them. Conversely, when you choose to pray for somebody by name every day, it softens your heart towards them. And then he goes on to talk about not only our mouth, but our eyes. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. If you allow your eyes to gaze longingly at something long enough, it'll capture your heart. I think about Achan in the book of Joshua where he looked and desired after the treasure from the cities that they were conquering. And God said, don't take that for yourself. You offer that as a sacrifice to me. But Achan, he looked at it. He longed for it. He took it. Think of Eve in the Garden of Eden looking at the fruit, desiring it, longing for it. She took it. That's what we do. And then feet. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Throughout the Bible, we're told not to walk in the path of sinners, not to stand in the the place of the wicked. We have to guard our footsteps or they might lead us down a path that will poison our hearts. We need daily vigilance to guard what things we feed our mind, what things we tell ourselves and other people, what we allow ourselves to look at and long for, where we allow ourselves to go. And maybe not physically, but maybe on the computer or on the television or in the music that we listen to. And our best weapon for guarding our heart is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Paul told Timothy, it is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And it is God's primary tool for examining our hearts. James compares it to a mirror that we can look at and examine ourselves in. The book of Hebrews says that it is a sword that pierces through our soul. It lays us wide open and exposes the truth of our hearts. Now, you may be sitting here wondering, David, what does any of this have to do with shape? It's a good question. And here's the answer. The next thing we have to do with our hearts is to explore our hearts with wisdom. Proverbs 25 says the purpose of a person's heart are like deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. We've been talking about disordered desires. Desires in and of themselves aren't bad. The desire for friendship, the desire for success, the desire for health and long life, the desire for love or good food or fun... There's nothing wrong with these things. These are God-given desires. The problem is when we get those things out of order. When our desires and our passions become a means unto themselves 
Then they lead us away from God and they cause us to be self-centered and they drive a wedge between us and others. And you think about in the body, disorder in the body can lead to disease, can lead to death. And the same is true in our hearts. So as followers of Jesus, we need to rely on the Spirit's wisdom to help us plunge the depths of our heart to draw out what is good. The God-given passions, burdens, and desires that He has placed within us. And we need God's wisdom to know how to then serve Him from our hearts with all of our hearts. So how does God shape our hearts for service? Well, naturally, there are some things we should all share a burden and a passion for as people of God, right? We should all be passionate, as Ben was illustrating, for God's glory, right? We should all be passionate about worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We should all have a great burden and desire to fulfill the Great Commission and build one another up as fellow Christians. We should all hunger and thirst for the Word of God and seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. These are the overarching passions of a heart that's been made new by Jesus. So that's a given. But underneath that umbrella of desire, God gives us all unique passions and desires and burdens. And there are some, you know, there are some things that fire me up that don't fire Ben up. There are causes that fire Matt up that don't fire me up. Because we're all different. When it came to preaching to God's people, Jeremiah described it like this. He said, His word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. We might call this burning in our hearts for something because you're so passionate about it. We might call that zeal. Being zealous. There are areas of interest that are so important to us we can't shake it. Right? If we tried not to care about it, if we tried not to be involved in it, if we tried not to talk about these things like Jeremiah, it would be like a fire within us that we couldn't keep contained. It would drive us crazy. There are things that we are passionate about like that. And loosely, I've categorized these in three areas. And these are the three areas on your assessment tool as well. The first is burdens. Burdens for specific causes, needs, or issues. And the thing about Jesus, Jesus would often look at a crowd of people who were sick, who were lame, who, who, who had needs. They would be coming to Him. And the Bible says that He was moved with compassion. He was burdened for them. Last Sunday, Thomas Hammond, the executive director of our Georgia Baptist Mission Board, shared with us some of the areas that Georgia Baptist churches are burdened for in doing something about. We have a burden for human trafficking, for pre- and postnatal care, for childhood literacy. These are some needs and causes that we as Georgia Baptists have said, we can tackle that with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. What about you? What needs, causes, or issues move your heart? to compassion. That will begin to tell you where your heart passions are. A second category is compassion for specific people groups. Compassion for specific peoples or groups. You know, Georgia Baptists, we're also targeting our efforts to minister to and to reach international people living here in Georgia and and children that are in foster care. Paul had a special place in his heart for the Gentiles. In fact, he called himself an apostle to the Gentiles. So that was a people group that Paul was passionate about reaching. Maybe there's a group that has that kind of place in your heart. Maybe you have a deep burden and compassion for children, or for teenagers, or college students. Maybe it's a particular nationality like Hondurans, 
or Guatemalans. Maybe it's inner city youth. Maybe you left to work with senior adults. Maybe you have a, a, a compassion in your heart for people who are deaf or who have learning disabilities. God gives us compassion for specific groups of people. And the third category is motivation for specific areas and roles of ministry. I know within the church, there are a variety of ministries. There are a lot of different roles that we fill. What, what motivates you in serving? Are you motivated by the idea of influencing people? Maybe you are motivated to uh, perfect something that's already in place to help make something better. Or maybe you want to pioneer new territory. You want to try something new. Maybe your passion is for organization. Or maybe you love to be out front, kind of leading the way. The original seven deacons were motivated to serve the widows. They wanted to be behind the scenes, meeting practical physical needs. While the apostles were motivated to prayer and the Word and preaching and teaching the Gospel. And of course, Mary and Martha each had their different passions and motivations for serving in different ways. So I hope you'll use that heart passion assessment tool to help you think about what roles motivate you. What people groups stir your heart? What are the issues that you're burdened about the most? Basically, you're trying to answer the question, what am I going to do with all that God has shaped me to be and do? If my heart's desires are ordered rightly, pointing toward God and His kingdom, what does that look like for me? Or another way to think about it is, what makes your heart sing? What, what gets, the, what gets the, you just excited and the energy flowing? What is the problem that burns in your gut? What were you created to be? Do that. And ask God to help you explore the depths, those deep waters of your heart. Ask Him for an understanding of what He is shaping your life to be about for His kingdom. Now, the first thing that we have to do this morning is make sure that we have a new heart. Those of you in this room, those of you listening on the radio or online... Have you come to Jesus and submitted to Him to give you a new heart? Have you acknowledged that you've got sin in your life and that you, your heart's sick, broken? You've got to come to Jesus. You've got to trust in Him and ask Him to forgive you of your sins, to put a new heart, to put His Spirit in you. Again, that's what this table is about. That newness of heart. If you haven't, I invite you in just a moment to come. Right here, right now, we can kneel down and you can pray and give your heart to Jesus. And you can experience that newness of heart today. Maybe for you, you're looking for a church home. And you've been visiting with us and worshiping with us. And you say, you know, this is where I want to pursue my heart's passions and serving. This is where I want my desires to be for God and His kingdom. And to those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ and members at First Baptist Church, do you know what you're passionate about? Have you spent time with the Lord asking Him to examine your heart and to help you know what unique way He wants you to serve His kingdom? It's time to get off the pew and to get busy. It's time to put those desires to work. Let's stand together and pray. Let's prepare our hearts and minds to come to this table. And whatever God's Spirit is speaking to your heart, I pray that you'll be humble and obedient enough to trust and obey. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that this table reminds us of. 
that we were lost and dead in our sin and transgressions. Our hearts were dead. That You died on the cross. You took our sin and shame upon Yourself. By the wounds You suffered, we can be healed. And if we trust in You, You give us new hearts that will beat more and more in rhythm with the heart of God. And so, Father, I pray that our desire, first and foremost, would be Your people, to love You and to love one another with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to find those ways that You want us to serve Your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.